Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis chapter 24, 12 through 15a, 53 through 54, 57 through 61, 66 through 67, and chapter 25, verses 19 through 21. Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave costly gifts to her brother and her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night there. When they got up the next morning, he said, send me on my way to my master. Then they said, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. So they sent their sister Rebecca on her way, along with her nurse and Abraham's servants, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you increase to thousands upon thousands. May your offspring possess the cities of their enemies. Then Rebekah and her attendants got ready and mounted the camels and went back with the man. So the servant took Rebekah and left. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, so if you were here with us last week, uh, we started a new series uh, that we're calling The Matriarchs. Uh, what we're going to be doing between now and the end of the year uh, is looking at the various women in the line of Jesus. Uh, we're actually starting our Advent series a little bit early. Uh, Advent will start in a few weeks, and we'll be picking up the genealogy of Jesus that's found in Matthew 1. But we thought we'd start that a little bit early and look at, earlier and look at some of the other women in Jesus' line. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we started by looking at Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and her story. And today, we come uh, to the next woman in Jesus' line, uh, the woman named Rebecca. In Rebecca's story, uh, we really have one really key main takeaway from the story that I want to look at today. And that main takeaway is what it means to trust the sovereignty of God, especially in the midst of uncertainty and brokenness and even sin. I think, 
and I say this because I know it to be true for myself, that one of the most consequential doctrines of the Christian faith is that of God's sovereignty. The reason being, the reason why I say that is that the degree to which we believe in the sovereignty of God is often the degree to which we will trust God as God. Meaning if we have a low view of God's sovereignty, we will likely have weak faith and will not trust him as we should. But if we have a very high view of God's sovereignty, we will likely have an unshakable, deeply rooted faith and trust in him as God. And so what I want to do today is I want to take a look at what we mean by the sovereignty of God, and I want to use Rebecca's story as one of the ways for us to understand it, because through and through, the sovereignty of God is present here in Rebecca's story. So let's consider a story of sovereignty, the tension of sovereignty, and then finally, the promise of sovereignty. Okay, so first, uh, a story of God's sovereignty. Again, if you were with us last week, we uh, looked at the story of Sarah and the birth of her son, Isaac, the promised son to uh, Sarah and Abraham, uh, which is another story of God's sovereignty at work. Uh, But now we fast forward from Isaac's birth to now Isaac getting to the point where he himself is looking for a wife so that he might now carry on the line uh, of his father and be part of this promised line that was to bless the nations one day. And so what we see in the story, and there was a lot, there's, this runs chapters long, so we try to chop it up a little bit so we have a general sense of what's going on in the story, but essentially what we see is Abraham commissions one of his servants to go search for uh, a proper partner for Isaac. But this task, as, he is, as the service and servant is sent, has certain conditions uh, that you can read about earlier in the chapter. But in sum, Abraham currently lives amongst uh, pagan people, the Canaanites. And he didn't want his son, Isaac, to marry a Canaanite. And so Abraham sends his servant to go to his own people, trusting that there he would find a suitable suitor for his son. Now, as the servant goes off to find this potential wife, he begins to pray along the way because he's going off to this land having no idea who he's looking for. He's just hoping that at some point on his journey, the Lord is going to bring the proper wife along uh, for Isaac. He's asking the Lord along the way. He's praying these prayers, asking the Lord to clarify who, who Isaac's wife is to be and that he would, as a result of finding her, convince her to be able to come back with him. There's a lot of variables for this guy. He doesn't know who he's finding. And even if he finds someone that he thinks is suitable, he needs that person to agree to marry Isaac, someone that she's likely never met. And so he prays, in essence, this for an extraordinary sign from God. He basically says, listen, God, I need the first woman that I interact with to be the woman who is to come back with me. So he, he comes to this well expecting that the very first woman that approaches him is going to be it, right? This is a big, bold kind of prayer. But what's interesting in verse 15 that we just heard read, it said that before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder. In other words, the servant prays this absurdly specific prayer, and God answers it. And we know he answers the prayer. We know that she's going to be the right one because as the servant approaches uh, this woman named Rebecca, we start to discover some things about her. 
First, we're told here that she's beautiful, which for the servant was not unimportant. It wasn't the most important thing, but it's noted there. Uh, another thing that we're told is that she goes back and forth uh, several times with water to ensure that there is enough water, and commentators uh, note that that likely means that she was a, a very diligent, hard worker. Uh, again, not the most important thing, but it's not unimportant. But then the other thing that's interesting is that we learn that her name is Rebecca, and interestingly, her name is significant because her name is a derivative of the, the Hebrew word for blessing, right? Her name was blessing. And so given that Abraham was looking for a wife to carry on his line, a line that would bless the nations, this woman was very intriguing to the servants. It seems as though he had found her. The concern now is that he needs to convince Rebecca and her family that going with him is a good idea. And so he engages her and talks with her and the family. Now we see in the passage that the family's all up for it, but they wanted to know, the family wanted to know if Rebe how Rebecca felt about it. And in verse 57, we're told, then they said, this is her family, let's call the young woman and ask her about it. So they called Rebecca and asked her, will you go with this man? I will go, she said. Now that said, understand the significance of what she's willing to do. She is about to leave her people, her home, and head to a foreign land with which she is not familiar. She had absolutely no certainty about what lies ahead for her, but here she is, an answer to the servant's prayer, and there is this trust that she has to now go with him and simply says, I will go. Now, given that context, does that sound familiar at all? I mean, doesn't that actually sound a lot like how God had called Abraham to also leave behind everything that he knew, to go to a foreign land with which he was unfamiliar, but trusting that as he goes, God is going to be with him? Rebecca's willingness, her willingness to go, is not just her stepping into the creation of, or the ongoing creation of the physical line of Abraham, but she's also here in that very short sentence, I will go. She's also carrying on a spiritual legacy of trusting God with whatever comes. And so she leaves and becomes the wife of Isaac. Now, that's the, that's the backdrop. Again, it spans multiple chapters, but that's essentially the story. And I started off by saying that what we're trying to do today is process and understand the sovereignty of God, trusting in the sovereignty of God. What we just heard, that story of God's sovereignty, is a story that we are able to catch a glimpse of from the beginning of, to the end. But what we often forget when reading about these stories is how uncertain these circumstances are for those who are involved. It's very easy for us to read these stories sometimes, acknowledging along the way that God intervenes and that things work out the way that God wants them to because we see the story from the beginning and the end. So when Abraham leaves his homeland, of course it works out that he finds a new land and he's able to settle down. When Abraham is promised uh, a son, that would come through his elderly wife, Sarah, of course God would provide them for a son. We know that story is coming. When Rebecca here is called to go and become the wife of Isaac, of course we know it's going to work out because we know these stories. But my question would be, why of course? 
Now, if we're realistic, there is no, of course, about any of those stories, especially for those that are there, present in those stories, navigating the very uh, uncertain future that they have before them, all while trusting the sovereignty of God. If you are here and you have experienced the uncertainties of life, you can imagine what they are also feeling. Though we know the end of their stories, there's real tension in the midst of trusting in the sovereignty of God because of how uncertain the future can be, which brings us to the tensions of the sovereignty of God. And in this story, there are two different approaches to an uncertain journey that's ahead that we see. What we see here is we see the story of the servant and how he approaches the uncertainties and the tensions of the sovereignty of God. And then we see the story of Rebecca. And both of them provide us a bit of a different perspective on how we approach the sovereignty of God in our lives. Let's look at both of them quickly. All right, so let's start with the servant and his tension with understanding the sovereignty of God. The servant has a very unsure journey ahead of him, as we just said. He, as he goes to look for Rebecca, he wants a clear answer. He wants a sign from God that what, about what he should do and whom he should approach. And so he prays this pretty audacious prayer, uh, hoping that God will make clear to him the decision that he's supposed to make. Just, God, I have no idea what's going to happen. I need you to bring the exact person at the exact time who will do the exact thing that I need her to do in order to be clear. Now, I will say that on the one hand, we could commend the servant for trusting God, meaning he very much went on this uncertain journey, believing that God would bring him exactly where he needed to go and provide the exact person that he came to find. So on the one hand, we could say, yes, he was trusting God. But on the other hand, more often than not, these types of prayers that he prayed there, for many of us, when we pray those kinds of prayers, they're actually not rooted in a faith and trust in God. Often praying that God gives us some kind of sign or an insistence that God would produce a particular outcome, those are often not prayers of faith. Those often tend to be prayers of doubt. Meaning, when we face uncertain journeys ahead, if we have dis, uh, important decisions to make, when life brings very jarring experiences where we want some kind of reason for those experiences, don't we often default to these kinds of really audacious prayers, seeking some kind of sign of God? You know, one of the, the most famous uh, stories, examples of this in the Bible uh, of asking God for a sign as some kind of confirmation uh, is the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. Maybe you know the story. Um, the story, as the story goes, Israel was oppressed by the Midianites, and God called Gideon to lead an army against them. And through the narrative, it's clear that Gideon does not trust that God is leading him. And even though he has clearly seen God at work, even though he clearly heard from God that he should go, he decides to put God to the test. And this is where you have the story of Gideon and the fleece. Again, maybe you know this story. Gideon, unsure about whether or not God is actually leading him to go, not quite sure if he can trust that God is sending him, uh, what he does is he tells God, listen, I'm going to lay out this fleece overnight, and if there is dew on the fleece and the, 
the ground around it is dry, I'll go. That'll be my sign. Well, he wakes up the next morning, and the fleece is soaked, and the ground is dry. God met him in that test. But then that was still not good enough for him. Even though this is what he asked God to do, it wasn't sufficient. And so in chapter 6, verse 39, this is what Gideon says. It's almost like he knows what he's doing is wrong, because this is what he says. He says, don't be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just one more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece, but all the ground around it, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. All right, so again, God allows, him to be test, allows Gideon to test him and meets him as this confirmation. Now, here's what I find to be ironic about the story, the usual telling of that story and the application of that story. So often, Gideon is held up as this exemplar who tested God, God responded, and so it becomes clear now that he should go. And usually the way that the application of that passage goes is, what is your fleece? What do you need to lay before the Lord? What is the test that if God responds, makes clear that you are to proceed in a particular kind of way, that you can trust him to move forward? The problem with that, though, is that, yes, in his mercy, God is faithful and he meets Gideon in his, in his weakness. But the context of that story is that Gideon's fleece reflects a weak, doubt-filled faith. His fleece request reveals a deep lack of trust in God and really should be viewed as, a, as an anti-exemplar for testing God in that, uh, in that way. And as a bit of a side note, but an appropriate one, we really should consider how the Bible talks about testing God. Right? It's consequential to what it means to trust the sovereignty of God because there's a couple of different ways the Bible talks about testing God. There's one type of testing that is rooted very much in faith. And there's another one that's rooted in doubt-filled sin. Let me explain to you what I mean. So there's a type of faith that we, or I'm sorry, a type of testing that we see in places like Malachi 3, where God calls his people to bring their tithes and their offerings. And in that calling, God says to them in verse 10, he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. There in Malachi 6, or sorry, Malachi 3, that word test in that passage is a word that means to assess or to prove. It is, it is God calling his people to prove his faithfulness by giving their tithes, giving their offerings, being generous, and as a result, experience uh, his blessing upon them. So it's a testing, it's an assessment of God's, uh, of God's people to prove that he will do what he said that he would do. And in that context, test me in this. Uh, God is saying, be generous and watch how I bless you. It's something that God calls his people to do. But there's also another type of testing that we see more often throughout Scripture. And it's a type of testing that is not rooted in faithfulness, but again, it's rooted in doubt. And it's in places like Deuteronomy 6, where God commands Israel not to test him. He, they, he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa. 
Now, if you recall Jesus in Matthew 4, when he's tempted by Satan, he uses that passage from Deuteronomy 6. He uses that passage to resist the temptation of Satan. And this is what that, this is what, uh, that interaction looks like between Jesus and Satan. It says this, that the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, Satan says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, this is where Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, he says, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa. The, the temptation is, in a sense, saying that the Father has no choice but to rescue Jesus. So Jesus ought to put him to the test and make God interviewed. It's, it's a posture. What Satan's attempting to do here is create a posture of doubt and even manipulation in Jesus, not faith in trust. It attempts to manipulate God by forcing him to act in a particular way. And we know that to be true because in Deuteronomy 6, where that passage come from, when, when God commands Israel to not test him, do not test me like you did at Manasseh, we, uh, Massa, we read about what's going on there in Massa in Exodus 16, I'm sorry, 17, but basically what we see there is Moses has led the people of God out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God, but soon they begin to grumble and they begin to complain. And that grumbling ends up turning into this full-out distrust of God and doubt that God would actually take care of them. And at one point in that story, it culminates with them basically saying, if you are God, and if you are God with us, prove it. Intervene. Are you with us or are you not? And what I find to be striking, let me bring all this together, that in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of unknown journeys, in the midst of unforeseen circumstances, I find that so often my posture, and maybe it is the case for many of you, is that exact posture where we say to God, listen, you said you're God. You said I can trust you. You said you'd be faithful. And if you want to prove that you are, then you need to do what I am asking you to do in the way that I'm asking you to do it. That kind of posture that doesn't trust the sovereign hand of God, but rather a posture that demands and even insists that God act in a particular way. That is not a posture of faith and trust. It's a posture of almost this despairing doubt and fear and even a questioning of God's character. Audacious, big, bold, specific kinds of prayers are not always wrong. But sometimes they can be wrong, especially when in those prayers we begin to question the character of God. And so, bringing it back to our story, I don't know if that's what the servant has going on, but I do know, at least for myself, that's the kind of thing I can have going on in the midst of uncertainty. But there's another approach to the, the sovereignty of God that we see in that passage, and that's the posture of Rebecca. Rebecca's posture is completely different because she, even more than the servant, has much to trust God for. She faces immense uncertainty about the future. And she doesn't pray a prayer 
that attempts to manipulate God into acting in, in particular ways before she's going to trust him. She's not, she doesn't pray prayers like Gideon. As she begins to sense that maybe God's calling her to go, she doesn't say, cool, let me lay down this fleece. God, act in this particular way before I decide I'm going to actually go. Instead, as it becomes clear that God is calling her, what does she do? She simply says, I will go. And she picks up and begins her journey. See, a true trust in the sovereignty of God means that God is in control and that God will fulfill his promises. A true trust in the sovereignty of God is this willingness to move forward, believing that God will prove himself faithful no matter what might come. It's the posture of, of Job. I come back to this passage all the time. In the beginning chapter of Job, the very first verses, where Job is he's, um, thinking about the faithfulness of God, and he says that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. In other words, I don't know what's going to come. The Lord might give and the Lord might take away, but regardless of what might come, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's that kind of trust in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Uh, I think I've shared this with you uh, before, but years ago, my wife and I, we were processing some really big decisions and consequential decisions uh, in life. It was actually a, a really hard and uncertain season for us, and um, it was definitely a season where I had this impulse to say, God, are you God or not? If you are, prove it. Give me a sign. But in that season, when I had that, this turbulent season, this uncertain season, um, because God is so kind, I came across a sermon by uh, a very influential preacher who I won't name because if I named this guy every single time I refer to him, I'd be naming him every single week. Some of you may know who this is, uh, but I've shared this quote before. But something that this well-known influential pastor said when addressing the sovereignty of God he said, in a, in, uh, and in particular, he's, he's talking about how God guides us as we move into the future in uncertainty. He said this, that God's guidance in the Bible is more something God does than something God gives. Some say, I need God's guidance. However, you're standing in it. It's a current moving you along. Now, in context, Tim Keller, who is who I'm talking about, uh, was discussing the idea that many uh, seek God's guidance and they look for, they want to have like a sense of peace before they make a, a particular decision. You know, in a decision and sometimes uh, even looking for a, for a sign before they make a decision. They want, they want those very specific things to know that God is actually leading them. Um, now, of course, for Rebecca, she didn't need some miraculous sign. She doesn't pray these uh, audacious prayers. Instead, she very much does and kind of embraces what Tim is talking about there. She just kind of says, all right, I'm going to trust God's current that's moving me along. I don't know what is to come, but I will go. I'm going to trust that his current is moving me to where I need to go. And this posture doesn't just apply, of course, to decision-making, but it's trusting God in the midst of anything that life brings. It's trusting that in the end, Proverbs 16 is true, that the Lord works out everything to its proper end, that he is in control of where things are going and that he's moving us along and that we can trust his faithfulness 
along the way. And even if I, and this is, this was probably, uh, this is what was so key for me at the time, is even if I inadvertently or advertently uh, make a bad choice or a bad decision, I can trust that the consequences of that bad choice are going to be part of God's working all things to their proper end. It is trusting that my failures or the failures of others or tragedy, whatever might come, it cannot derail the purposes of God. There will be times when I am not 100% sure about what is to come and I don't have a strong sense of peace about how to move forward and yet I will still trust God's sovereign hand nonetheless. This is what it means to trust the sovereignty of God. That anything that befalls us, God will remain faithful. Now, that said, it doesn't 